0: Welcome to another episode of the Waters and Harvey Show. I am Darren Waters, and I'm Marcus Harvey. It's great to be back here with you all again. Marcus, uh, a lot has transpired since the last time we were here. But look, I I have to say this. The last time, uh, the last show that we did, um, I have gotten a great deal of feedback uh, from from a number of folks about that show which was with the uh, the group decor and we were introducing the new theme music to the waters and Harvey show Leroy um, which uh, a lot of people just really loved and I've got to admit Marcus when I heard it um, I said you know this sounds right this sounds
1: exactly the way we thought it would sound to introduce the show yeah absolutely I'm, as I said uh, last show I'm excited about the new Theme music. I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, the conversation we had with the members of, of the core. Um, and for me, you know, it's always interesting to talk. I don't, I don't, I don't often have occasion to converse with um, with actual jazz musicians mm-hmm. um, about about the 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 art that they create. As, um, as such. And so, yeah, I, I found that experience very, very enriching. And uh, I think that um, the, the new theme music that, that we have really helps to, to give the show um, a signature. It right. Um, it really helps, I think, to to really sharpen the show's signature. So um, I'm enthused about
0: it. All right. So uh, we, you know, Marcus and I both are so glad that you all, who are our regular listeners to the show, we're so happy to have you in the audience. It's great to know that the audience continues to grow, Marcus, which you know we we are really excited about. But we we are so glad to know that you all deeply appreciated that show as well. There were a number of people, Marcus, who uh who did say to me. You guys sound like you were having a lot of fun. You know, we we deal with some heavy topics on the show, but we got a chance to kind of deal, you know, to kind of lighten the mood a little bit in that conversation with uh, with the guys from the core. But you know, it was some interesting things that came up in the course of that conversation. And and Bill, our colleague at uh, UNC Asheville, um, you know, Bill Bill Barris brought up uh, that issue of the search. You know, that jazz and 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 this kind of this artistic form and it being the original American form, that there's something about the search, the search that is a part of that music. And I got to tell you, Marcus, I'm really wanting to come back to that conversation.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. I was just having a conversation with my father recently. He was in town to visit uh, my son, uh, his grandson. (laughs) And uh, we we, we had a conversation about jazz and I, I thought about this, um, this point that 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 Bill made um, about jazz music um, being a kind of, of search, and uh, for me, it, it brought to my, it brought to mind how I experienced jazz as a listener, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I experienced jazz as a form of music that uh, that introduces at least you know uh, uh, I would say every every form of jazz except for free jazz, right? It introduces mm-hmm. a theme. A theme. Uh, And then uh, through, you know, the creativity that is unique to jazz music, right? Improvisation, um, uh, etc. The listener is then invited to kind of keep track of that theme throughout the performance. I.e. to search for that theme, and then sort of experience that theme in a kind of reimagined way by the end mm-hmm. of the piece. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and I wonder if that, if that is, if that may, might be um, somewhat analogous to the point, to the broader point uh, that Bill was making about jazz as a creative idiom, being concerned about, um, you know, the, the kind of the kind of uh, uh, unsettling, uncertain, unpredictable experience of searching. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. An experience that can be both 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 troubling, both frightening, but also also very rewarding. Right. So. Right. So these so I think that conversation just just reminded me of, of why I love jazz as, as an idiom so much. It is. You know, and as I
0: listen to you, Marcus, and your brilliance, as you usually are, you know, you're kind of firing up my mind here. And I'm starting to think about additional things, you know, and especially as a historian. And, you know, my argument about how we are as Americans are really are not given to really studying the past the way that I think that the past should be studied, that we are such a forward looking nation that we tend to think no more mostly about the present and here again I'm borrowing borrowing from another writer or from other writers who have who have made this kind of uh, that had the same reflection about America but the one thing about jazz we go back to it we go back and we listen to these old pieces that have been recorded you know Thelonious Monk uh and many of these other great jazz artists you mentioned Miles Davis in that last conversation we go back and we revisit that music and we listen for different things and and we hear different things every time we hear this music. Mm-hmm. We talked about Max Roach on that show and his uh, his freedom now suite and uh, which he did. We in, we insist that we insist peace and you hear something different. Marcus, in a way, as a historian, I wish we would go back and do the same thing with American history, study it that way to to see what we might see that we haven't seen before, the nuances of the experience. And what can we take from that as we kind of move forward uh, through this uh, ongoing enterprise that we call the American experiment?
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, another way in which uh, jazz can be be helpful, I think, um, by, by way of analogy, and this speaks to your point about uh, how jazz invites us to look back, right? Uh, one of the things that's, that's interesting to me about, about jazz music as a creative idiom is that you can really trace um, a, a kind of genealogical line, right, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that connects the various different jazz idioms. Uh, Right. um, Going all the way back to, um, you know, uh, the Dixieland style jazz. And what's interesting Mm -hmm. is that um, uh, over time, as different jazz idioms uh, emerged and were developed, uh, oftentimes these newer idioms were in conversation with older idioms. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that really helped to, I think, um, enrich uh, jazz as an art form and, and heighten its uniqueness as really as a, as a, as a, as a uniquely American uh, musical musical idiom, right, and 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 I think that you know we you know uh, uh, that 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 people might benefit, right, um, by looking at jazz at that way. I mean, in this way, mm-hmm. um, and thinking about you know the importance of you know in that line, thinking about the importance of you know not only looking to the past from the present. But being in conversation with the present in a way that is creative, dynamic, relevant, right. because that's what that's what jazz music does musically. Right? Right. Right. Um, so so maybe, you know, people will look more to to the musical realm for examples of how to engage the past. Right. They, they would find themselves um, helped in that way.
0: I think we've come up with a good idea here, Marcus. I'm hearing a class, a class, you know, we might need to create a class here. You know, we could work with Bill and the other guys to do this, but yeah, you make a great point, but you know, we could talk all day about, uh, about music, about jazz, that last show, how much we deeply appreciate it. I'm excited again about uh, our new theme music. Leroy is such a wonderful piece. I mean, it really kind of, I think captures what it is that we do with the show so well but we're we're here today to really kind of talk again about history and the history of this region of uh the, of the american south the southern appalachian region and it marks for me a question that comes to mind as i think about uh today's conversation as we get into it here in a, in a moment is um are there any black people in the mountains of the american south you know and that's been one of those questions that you know was kind of thrown at me early on as i began my my uh, my research uh, are my uh, my time as a graduate student at UNC Chapel Hill, and I decided to write about Western North Carolina and and about the African American community in Asheville. And people wanted to know, well, were there any African Americans in the region? And and uh, there's still kind of that that going assumption, our erroneous assumption that there aren't many Black people in the Mountain South. But we're going to be talking about that again. But before we jump into that, I know many people in the audience uh, know that you you, know, you and I, you know, you are jumping back into an academic year. The academic year has started. Um, is different because you're back on campus again. Um, had a full year, I guess, nearly a year and a half where uh You were teaching, and I did it for one semester teaching via Zoom. Um, How's it feel to be back in the classroom, brother?
1: Yeah, you know it's interesting. Um, I I wasn't quite sure what the experience of returning to the to the classroom uh would be would be like um after having taught remotely in my case at least uh for an entire academic year um you know i'm I'm of course uh worried about you know the risks involved Mm -hmm. and even though we're now um asked to teach with a mask on and students have to attend class you know with the mask on but i think what i realized is that um i missed uh the physical classroom Mm -hmm. right I, i missed being able to engage students um you know, in a physical space, I I, I missed being able to see students interact with one another and sort of share uh, collectively in a in, in a learning process over the course of fifteen or sixteen weeks. So, so yeah, I mean, even though there there certainly were were benefits to being able to teach from home <laughs> in terms of just convenience and comfort and so forth, uh, I, I think I actually prefer being in the classroom. In the classroom. Uh, despite despite the risks, and um, I I would say as well that that much to my You know, I I expected students to be a little bit um, uh, hesitant uh, or or skittish about sort of being in a classroom environment as we continue to sort of battle through this this pandemic. But uh, my experience has been quite the opposite. I mean, students Mm -hmm. seem relieved. At least my students do mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to be back in the classroom, to be able to actually engage with a professor face to face and hear and learn from from their peers. So, uh, yeah. So thus far, it's been a it's been a refreshing experience, um, ironically.
0: Well, I can understand why your students want to be back in the classroom with you, Marcus. I have, uh, and, and I'm sure that I, many of our listeners will uh, can pick this up from uh, just listening to you on the show. Uh, that he puts on quite a show in the classroom, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and, and and everyone, you should know that he is so enthralled with the new theme music to the Waterson Harvey <laughs> Show that he has been tempted to actually play that as he
2: walks into the. No, 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 no.
1: So, so, so says the man who, while at UNCA, uh, was known as one of the greatest showmen. On the faculty. So (laughs) I I find it highly ironic that you would uh, call me out in that respect.
0: (laughs) Well, well,
1: Marcus, I'm glad things are going well as you re-enter
0: the classroom. As most of our listeners know, with as far as me, there have been some changes uh, with me as well. And I know Blue Ridge Public Radio has been talking about this, as have other people kind of, um, you know, not only here, but downstate in Raleigh. And I have moved into this new position. Or I am about to officially move into this new position as the deputy secretary for uh, for archives and history for the state of North Carolina with the Department of, of Natural and Cultural Resources. And brother, I have found out from conversations with one of our our esteemed state legislators who is uh, serving in the state Senate that the department is that acronym for uh, the department that I will be working in, that that it's known in the state legislature as DANCER. So, um, you know, I'm already learning some things from being back down (laughs) in Raleigh. But I'm looking forward to this opportunity. Um, It's interesting that I will be working with a great team of of folks there. And one person in particular, the Secretary of the of the department who was appointed by uh, Governor Cooper, uh, Reed Wilson. Reed, it you know, it was just a pleasure to be able to meet him. And as I think about the Department of Natural Cultural Resources, we don't have time here today to talk about all of the pieces that are involved in this department, um, but it's just a great department. But Reed has referred to it as the department of everything that everyone loves about North Carolina. It's the department that is responsible for North Carolina's treasures. And part of that is its history collecting and cultivating and uncovering and preserving the history of North Carolina Um, a part of that department are our state parks uh, fall under the purview of this department, the state historic sites, I mean there are. 27 state historic sites across the state of North Carolina. Um, two, you know, three, three major ones here um, in in the western part of of the state. Well, we have the Vance birthplace. We have um, also the Thomas Wolfe, the Thomas Wolfe uh, Memorial, which is here as well. We have the western region of the state archives, which is located here. These are people um, that I have gotten to know very well in my time uh, in in western North Carolina at UNC Asheville a number of who have been on the show, uh, Kimberly Floyd and uh, Steve Nash, who are are both affiliated with the Vance Birthplace. And those have been great conversations that we've had with them. But we've also got the state history museums, our state museum system, which is the art history and the natural museum of uh, North Carolina. So I'm looking forward to jumping into this new role, being able to uh, be a part of a team that is working to preserve and, and really kind of uncover uh, new stories about the history of North Carolina, because there's still so many that we do not know. And you and I have spent a great deal of time on the show talking about that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, yeah. what, 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 what an exciting opportunity. Congratulations uh, to you. Um, you know, I'm excited to to learn even more from you than I've already learned um, as you <laughs> as you move into this new position and learn more about uh, the stories right um, of, of African Americans across the state of North Carolina and also the stories of, of others um, stories that, that, that may not be um, as, as well known so I think this is a very rich opportunity it and, does and I'm excited for you
0: yeah, thanks a lot, Marcus. And, and you know, it, one of the things we've been doing with the William Friday Fellowship and conversations that we've been having with the fellows that you and I deeply appreciated was that it was giving us the opportunity to talk to people across North Carolina to find out what was going on across our great state how people are actually working in their community to build and support community. Um, and I think that this this provides an additional opportunity for us to to talk about more stories across the state of North Carolina. So I appreciate you know uh, the support that you gave um, that you've always given to things that I wanted to do Marcus I appreciate the support that you gave to my effort to um, to to us, uh, to pursue this position, and the support that you will give as I as I uh, kind of fall into this position, and how we can use it to kind of enhance the conversations that we'll have here. So, everyone, you know, thank you for the the many congratulations. Uh, uh, Congratulatory messages that you have sent to me, and we look forward to staying in conversation with you all as we kind of move forward. And Marcus, I don't want to delay, you know, going ahead and jumping into the conversation for the day. As we've said, our focus is going to be back on this region of the state, Southern Appalachia, Western North Carolina—not Western North Carolina uh, in particular—but we're going to kind of travel this time to West Virginia. Uh, we've had great conversations with. Um, with Dr. Bill Turner, as you know, who has talked a lot about Kentucky. And if, if, let Bill tell it. Uh, Kentucky is all there is, right? (laughs) Especially when it comes to Appalachia. But hey, we know the the space is much larger. And so we're glad to be able to have today with us uh, a dear friend, someone who's become a really good friend. Dr. Cicero Fain is going to be joining us in this conversation. I'm not going to really introduce Dr. Fain because I'm going to let him talk a, a little bit about his own background. But, Dr. Fain, you know, Marcus and I are glad to welcome you into this conversation. Please join us in this conversation. It's good to have you here.
3: Uh, thanks, Darren. Thanks, Marcus. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. appreciate you, gentlemen, inviting me. I just was just grooving on you guys' uh, <laughs> conversation.
2: No, I'm right. talking no. about
3: jazz. I'm like, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to go with you.
2: No, right. Um, <laughs> and,
3: and, it, and we could, you know, we could spend a good 10, 15 minutes just, just on that, right, uh, right. But, I, but we can. I know we can. Um, yep. uh, but but you know, it's it's just a, so uh, enlightening and engaging, and and uh, I just you know, I have it's so rare I get a chance to really talk about jazz. Right. You gentlemen talked about it. Um, um because it's a fun. Well, anyway, it's a funny thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> DC doesn't
3: have really a dedicated jazz station anymore. Right. Uh. You know, they, they got one. And it's like way down at the at the end of the daggone dial. Um, you know, they used to, when I was there, uh, you know, the 80s and 90s, you had at least two or three dedicated jazz stations. Mm-hmm. And of course, moving back into Huntington, West Virginia, come on.
2: You're uh, wrong.
0: <laughs> Yeah.
3: Thankfully, um, you know, Marshall University does have a radio, the, the in-house uh, university station, uh, and they they have a jazz um Station or or a uh, um, timeline, uh, I don't know. Well, maybe Thursdays, you know, ten until four, something along that. I can at least tap into it. But uh, thank God for Alexa, uh, so I can tap into it uh, <laughs> all the time through streaming. Um, but it's a pleasure to be here. I'm here to represent West Virginia. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge Bill Turner, our dear friend, because um, West Virginia is the center of black. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you know, we could have, we could actually have a robust debate about that in, in conversation because, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's out of the realm of, of, uh, possibility. I mean, Evan, Evan Hickelbaum even said that you cannot talk about black America without mentioning black West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this, there's been so many people that have come out here from you know, from the formation of the state, of course, through the, through the late 19th, early 20th century, civil rights era, all those eras, uh, West, Black West Virginians have played a key role locally, regionally, statewide, and nationally. Um, and so that's one thing that I'm, I'm hoping to, in my small way, kind of give a sense of the breadth and scope of the importance of, of Black West Virginia. Uh, and West up uh, to the national narrative. You're right.
0: Well, you're listening to the Waters and Harvey Show here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Marcus and I are going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Waters and Harvest Show here on Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're in conversation today with Dr. Cicero Fain, and we're beginning a conversation about African-American life here in Southern Appalachia, looking specifically at uh, the region of uh, West Virginia and um, what Black life is in West Virginia has looked like. So thank you for joining us. Cicero, it's good to have you here with us. um, And thank you for making that point about the many great figures who have come out of West Virginia. We wanna come back to that in just a few minutes. But again, we heard you mention DC tell us where you're joining us from today because we're still you know not in the studio we're all on sure. zoom here and can you just share with us where you're joining us from today? i have
3: I, as you know um that i've accepted a new position at Marshall, which, which i'm putting on about three hats so i'm actually back in huntington back in my hometown um i uh i'm a third generation black huntingtonian mm. uh, and so uh, the roots run deep um and uh, I'm glad that I left, for sure, because you know it's always um, a, a a fantastic opportunity to be able to spread one's wings intellectually, uh, spiritually, personal personally, um, economically, professionally, mm-hmm. uh, and then bring some of that wisdom back home and hopefully be able to be a change agent uh, in, in in the city and the region. Um, I'm I'm sincerely wearing these hats. I'm I'm, I'm a faculty member. I'm administration. I mean, mm-hmm. diversity efforts, recruitment and retention efforts, mm-hmm. um, and really, my I think as a, my primary, I, I think my primary charge right now, and what I see as my primary charge, is is to really have Marshall recognize the that they have failed to, to acknowledge the importance of Black Appalachians and, and the history, and how critical it is to to. That to the Marshall take the lead role, at least within the region. As being the locus of Black ethnic, Appalachian cultural engagement and intellectual
1: inquiry. Well, thanks for that, uh, 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 Cicero. And I, 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 I'm curious to know. I mean, I know that you are born and raised in West Virginia, so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your experience um, growing up there. But I also want to quickly, before we do that, kind of double back to mm-hmm. uh, the the point you made earlier about being interested in having a robust debate <laughs> with Bill <Neil> Turner, <laughs> no. uh, sort of sort of pitting Kentucky against West Virginia. Uh, <laughs> Um, so if I could just, you can just do <laughs> me before a moment. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about what, from your perspective, as a historian of of, of Black Southern Appalachia, um, what what is at stake, right? So, so, so from your perspective, and, and what, sister... what would be? Oh, Go ahead. <laughs> go, no, go ahead, Marcus. <laughs> yeah, <I'm sorry>. what, <laughs> what from from your point of view, as one who is who has studied um, the specific example of Huntington in particular, uh-huh. what is at stake for making the case that well, yeah, you know, Kentucky may be important, or you know, it is is an important sort of locus of Black life, activity, and change in the history of Black Southern Appalachia, uh, but not necessarily more so than West Virginia, Black West nope. Virginia, uh, <laughs> Huntington. So, so for you. What is at stake in making that argument? Because, you know, as someone who so I've, I've now lived in, in Southern Appalachia now uh, since 2013, I'm continuing to learn
2: uh-huh.
1: about the historical black presence in this region. And this is kind of a, a debate that I've never before encountered. And so I'm just curious. I'm so I'm just curious to hear more about uh, sure. that. But, but before you share a bit about your experience, <laughs> yeah.
0: and, and Cicero, and Cicero, I just have to say, you know, Mark Marcus is convinced that I'm setting him up because I keep bringing historians on this show, yeah. and uh, so he's got two to contend with today. <laughs>
2: right, right. right.
1: So I'm not going to hear the end of this. But, but Cicero, please, it's, 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 just so you no, know, Cicero. I am. I am almost always outnumbered on this show. It's always, you know. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway.
3: <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's a fascinating thing to me because West Virginia, number one, you know, it's the only state within Appalachia, the entirety of Appalachia. And so um, I think as, as a as that is a regional geographic uh locus of, of the of the region writ large, I think that gives us some uh, abiding significance. Um and so, you know, Kentucky, what? Kentucky only. How far does Appalachian extend to Kentucky? Uh, Berea,
2: you know, maybe, uh, uh, you
3: know.
0: Yeah. A, you know, and because Cicero, does it even go beyond Lexington? That's what I was
3: thinking.
2: I don't yes, think mm-hmm. it does. I mm-hmm. don't think it does.
3: And so, you know, we got a whole state versus half a state. We, you know, we I, I think historically we can make the argument, given Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. Carter G. Woodson, um, that. Uh, uh, as far as the early contributions of African-Americans to African-American life and history um, and aspirations, we could put those two men at the pinnacle of of historical figures um, to have have, uh, impacted and have influence still today. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, So... uh, you know, certainly. You know, we. I think we could have a real good discussion about it. I think it's worthy, actually, of of maybe having a conference or some type of a symposium. Oh um,
0: yeah, yeah.
3: Um, um, but it it is it is. You know, West Virginia is one of those strange, paradoxical states um, that that um, that has so much rich African American history and engagement. Um, and contributions, um, but it also, as we know, is part of. It cannot escape the larger forces at play that have impacted it. The external forces at play,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
3: economic downturns, uh, drugs, um, uh, outmigration, uh, community fragmentation, and so even even at its even at its height, I don't think African Americans comprised. More than eight, nine percent of the general population, even at its mm-hmm. height. Mm-hmm. But that population was vibrant, um, was vital, was dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so now you've got, well, let's say three to four percent African American presence in the state. Um, and of course, you know, you gentlemen know this um, it's, it's operating at the bottom of the economic ladder means you it, the safety nets um, are, are much less uh stringent but, and 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 so the frame society the frame uh institutional support the frame social network uh, that has impacted white Appalachia has doubly impacted black Appalachia
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, you know and I think about uh you know Cicero as you talk about was for change I could we we could just sit in this All day just talking about these figures who've come from West Virginia. We were talking about music earlier. And as you were talking about, you know, uh, talking about some of these figures, I could not help. In my head right now, I'm hearing just the music of Bill Withers, you know, coming from West Virginia. I. And so you mentioned two of the towering figures, kind of like the the imposing mountains of West Virginia, because going through West Virginia, I, you know, Western North Carolina is beautiful. I, you know, this is my home. I was born and raised here in these mountains. But man, you want to deal with sea mountains, then you go to West Virginia. These are imposing mountains uh, just to even drive through. Um. And as you think about these towering historical figures like Booker T Washington and Carter G. Woodson, and just so you know, Marcus's son is named uh, for Carter G. Woodson. His name is wow. Carter. Awesome. Um, you know, as a as a kid growing up in, in West Virginia, did you know about these figures, uh, Cicero? And if so, did they, did they have some influence on your thinking about the state?
3: Most definitely. You know, it, it's you know, uh, you know, I have. I have a vignette or, or in which I talk about. I think in my, uh, maybe I've given previous talks about it, uh, a, a in which I sat at, you know, you sat on the front porch mm-hmm. in the swing, and you know how it is. You'd have neighbors, elders, um, friends, community friends just pop over, the or the milkman, uh, the postman stop in, and you share stories. You, you just start talking to each other. I mean I, th- I think that's the beauty of one of one of the um, benefits of growing up in Huntington is that we had front porches.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So because you know, nobody had air conditioning. So, no, that, right. <laughs> so you went on the front porch to escape the heat and the <laughs> houses were small and so like, you, know, you got tired of your parents or your sibling, you're going out on the front porch. Right. And that that was the this that was the cinema. That was life in full color passing in front of you, you know, mm,
2: mm. uh
3: folks walking to the store, married couples, uh, argue, folks arguing, folks running from the store if they did stole something. Um, you know, the dogs and cats uh, fighting in the streets, you know, all those things that that um that kind of gave you a cinematic overview of mm. life in and um and I just remember folks talking about the community. You know, not not I mean the car G might have been mentioned um, but it was more. It was really just more of those, those, those everyday people who were just doing what they were supposed to do, to move up the ladder. Mm-hmm. You know, contributing to the community, uh, volunteering, doing this, running the church, running this, You know, um, taking this, taking care of this, their children, their yards, um, and it just happened to build a tapestry for me. Um, and from there, I just begin to realize there's a story here. Um, and I think also it's important to realize, you know, West Virginia had at least, I want to say at least, um, five to six urbanized areas. You know, mm, so you okay. had a black urban um, industrial, these black urban industrial cities in which you have operating black high schools of high Intellectual achievement.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: And so these folks might not have become, you know, to, to the same stature as a Carter G. Woodson or a Booker T. Washington, but they became vice presidents of banks, vice presidents of companies, presidents of this particular association, and so forth and so on. And so, you know, I, I got a sense of that that richness that was the black circumstance through folks coming through.
2: Mm. the city,
3: mm. having these conversations on the porch. All right, right, All right, right.
1: Yeah, and, and this is this is so this is so interesting to hear. And uh, you know, Cicero, you you recently made a a, a major uh, contribution to the study of African American history in Southern Appalachia in the form of a book um, entitled uh, "Black Huntington: An Appalachian uh, Story." I think you have begun to address already uh, what kind of precipitated uh the the writing of this book you talked about um um the richness that you found there you talked about uh a a developing story that you that you observed um was there anything else that played a role um in 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 motivating this book
3: Mm because yes because it wasn't talked about in the schools Mm. you know i i could see you know one of the things for me growing up is i had models I could see black achievement. Mm-hmm. I could see a lawyer, black lawyers, black teachers, mm-hmm. black accountants, you know, um folks, black folks who had traveled, you know, and 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 who talked intellectually, who engaged in intellectual conversations. Um, um I could see the and 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 the diversity of the Black experience gave me a chance to kind of situate, well, who do I want to be? Who do I want to mm-hmm. hear what are, you know, because I had multiple models that I could that I could emulate. Mm-hmm. So I, I, could, I could see the knucklehead down the street in <laughs> the car, or I could see the guy who was on his way to law school um, who was going to do great things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that lacking for many of Black students, uh, maybe in, uh, certainly in the state of West Virginia, and, and perhaps nationwide in, in many of these small communities, in Central Appalachia. You don't have models. Oh,
0: we no you longer see models. it. Yeah.
3: You know, um, we, we got this great divide. Um, and so I think that had an indelible imprint upon me that, you know, one of my, my I had a Black high school teacher who became eventually, um, became the superintendent of Campbell County Schools. He gave me in my graduation, uh, my high school graduation book, he gave me a card that said, If you can dream it, you can become it. Mm -hmm. I still have that card to this day.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, You know, that kind of message, that kind of personal connection of someone that you respect and admire, because this is, you know, how it is Black teachers just aren't teachers, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they are representative.
0: Right. Yeah. And Cicero, it makes me think about, it makes me think about, you know, this report a few years ago that was on uh, National Public Radio that talked about, you know, you can make a significant difference in in the possibility that students of color will finish high school if they encounter at some point in their in their scholastic career, a teacher that looks like them. And so, you know, this is it's interesting to hear you bring this uh, to bring this up. I would like to ask you in in connection with your book, you know, what years what years do you cover in the book? And can you talk to us a little bit about some of the major themes um, that emerge in this in this work?
3: Sure. First, here we go.
0: <laughs> uh, we got it on the screen. <laughs>
3: thank, you, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it, 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 it chronicles really the Black experience um, prior to the formation of Huntington. Huntington was formed in 1871, but Cabell County was carved out of Kanawha County in 1809. So you had 200, roughly 200 slaves already in Cabell County um, in 1809. Um, and one of the, to me, one of the what really was fascinating to me was to learn that there was a functional literacy amongst amongst the slave population, mm-hmm. um, because we had a we had a green what was called green bottom plantation that existed um, that was run by the um, Albert Jenkins General Jenkins was a general in the uh, you know uh, Confederate general uh, in the in the Civil War. And the Jenkins family had 4,444 acres of land at one point. Um, and they certainly had the largest slave population. I mean, only, you know, nothing like 500 or 1,000, so you 50 slaves. But uh, um, the early governor of the state, before the formation of uh, the Jenkins, the rival of the Jenkins, the early, the former governor of the state, Governor Cabell, his wife taught the slaves how to read. Uh, in the 1820s, um, 1830s, and so not so much to give them, a, you know, a, a a academic education, but to have them be able to do the task, the, the functional task that were needed to be done, and so they had a functional literacy, and they took that literacy and then utilized it in a way, of course, that they weren't taught to, uh, to utilize. Um, that is. We're going to learn how to read and avail ourselves of that education, so we can find out a way to escape.
2: <laughs> uh,
3: and remember, Huntington is on the Ohio. Cabell County is on the Ohio River, Rhythm. and so it, there was a direct line of the Underground Railroad through Cabell County.
0: Um, so you, so you start Cicero at yes. the formation, and where do you end? In the then I end, in um, I
3: end up in 1929. I end up in 1929. Essentially, I go through three. I go through the slave circumstance. I go through the migratory process and how these first black generation of black migrants help form the foundation by which you will build black institutions. And then the third uh, aspect of it is the class stratification, the construction mm-hmm. of, a, of a professional class mm-hmm. um, that, and we know the complication, complicating aspects of class stratification. Right. Right. Some folks get left behind. Right. So. Um, well, you were- 1929. I'm sorry, it goes up to 1929 because it, it, it ends there because there's a significant case um, challenging restrictive covenants that takes place in Huntington. And uh, White versus White, ironically, the name mm-hmm. of the case is White versus White, mm-hmm. um, um, and the black couple named White wins the case with the help of the NAACP, the, a nascent organization at this time within the state and within, you know, making some inroads nationally, of course. Um, but the, the the victory not only applies to Huntington, they recognize that they wanted to eradicate the covenants throughout the state. And so that's why they got the NAACP involved in it and they were able to win it. And so I ended there. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you're listening to the waters and harvey show here on blue ridge public radio we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment and so again you're listening to the waters and harvey show here on blue ridge public radio we are in conversation today with Dr. Cicero Fane, professor who is in Huntington at Marshall University in Huntington, uh, West Virginia. Uh, he has written a book about Huntington, Huntington, uh, Black Huntington, an Appalachian story. And we're glad to have him join us today. Glad to have you all here with us. So Cicero, you're, you're, you've told us, you know, you begin with the formation of the county and then, then look at the formation of Huntington itself. Mm-hmm. ending in 1929, I guess right before, you know, kind of the 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 Great Depression really right. hits. Okay. Um, so major themes that emerge in the book uh, as you work through it. And then and then Marcus Brother, let me let you jump back in here.
3: Well I was I was gonna say that by 1924 Huntington, Huntington's black residents owned 60% of their homes. Mm-hmm. That was a figure greater than in Charleston or Clarksburg, West Virginia, they, they were number one. By 1930, Huntington is the largest city in the state, with the, with the state's second largest Black population. And so my whole reason for, um, one of the major reasons of writing the book is to, to, to uh, illuminate just how important Huntington was to the social, economic, cultural, political development of not only Black Huntington, But Huntington and the region. Right. Its labor, its talent helped to connect Huntington to the regional market and to the national National market. market.
0: Marcus, I got to tell you, and brother, I'm going to let you jump in here, but this figure that, that Cicero just raised 60% of people, you know, that's significant as we think about where we are today because the major questions about, you know, what do yeah. people of color actually own? Yeah. But when you look at this, I mean, that is a striking yeah. figure. But brother, yeah. Let yeah. Me check.
1: yeah, and Cicero, I mean, you, you've already raised a number of interesting themes you talked about. Uh, the role of African Americans, um, uh, yeah, in Huntington, um, in building Black Huntington, uh, and also in building, you know, Huntington more broadly. You talked about class stratification. Class stratification. You talked about a Black professional class. Um, but one of the other things that you just, that you address in your book, and I'm curious to hear you talk a bit more about this because this is this is a topic that I haven't I haven't um, I haven't heard uh, discussed uh, a whole lot. And that is something called industrial racism. Yes. Um, I, I know that the book ends in the late 1920s, right before the Great Depression. Um, what, what was the experience? I mean, and, and I'm thinking also about the statistic that, that Darren just mentioned of African-Americans in Huntington, you know, 60% um being homeowners right yeah uh, how, how did the realities how were the reality first of all what is industrial racism and then secondly um how did african-americans in huntington uh negotiate that reality
3: very thank you very excellent question marcus I, it's it's a fascinating thing to me because in essence you know huntington offered plenty of job opportunities because it had a broadening economy mm. and so blacks could gain Employment. okay, but industrial racism kept them locked at the bottom or at the most dangerous, the most arduous, the Mm -hmm. most monotonous jobs. Mm -hmm. So even though they had employment and they can they can count on that on that buck because they were paid well, because the economy was was booming. um, They couldn't count upon advancement. You're not going to supervise. You're not going to supervise a white man not going to happen
2: mm-hmm.
3: so you're going to be stuck you know i i found out there was we have um enzyme manufacturing company which was the one of the largest and not the largest railroad card manufacturing plant in the nation they have four employees that were of color of black they all were janitors and so you're not going to be working on the assembly line At that particular plant. Now, the CNO was a little different. You could you could garner uh, uh, a foreman position within the railroad, within the CNO railroad, Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. But uh, again, you're not going to boss around white employees.
1: yeah. Yes. And, go ahead. Just, just as a quick follow up, Cicero, I'm 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 thinking about the point that you just made about um, you know, okay, we 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 will hire these black laborers, but we will block their ability to advance mm, beyond right. a certain point. I'm thinking also about about that home ownership statistic. Um what what was the response of 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 White Huntington? Right. To all of these black folks (laughs) owning, owning, (laughs) owning all of this property.
0: And Cicero, Cicero, I want to, you know, this is an important question that Marcus has raised because I'm I'm thinking along the same lines. And and I'm wondering, were there examples of of African-Americans being able to pool their resources together? to, you know, for for, you know, economic, you know, expansion, even in their own in their own kind of sphere.
3: Yes. You know, at the end of the day, I have to you know this is a micro history that I think has some universal uh, commonalities and elements to it. Again, Huntington. Yes. To answer your question, Darren. Yes, they did pull the the resources. They Mm -hmm. established home um, benevolent societies, home owning um, uh, for home ownership. There were actually uh, at least one of them was interracially comprised. Huntington, in large measure, was was the black population was led by religious people, and and uh, you know pastors and religious people.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: in that sense, then, as long as they stayed, as long as the black population in large measure stayed religious, stayed you know um, as well as we're going to engage in racial uplift um you know the whole notion of racial uplift we're gonna live yes and we're yes. gonna establish our own black institutions
2: mm-hmm.
3: as, so we don't necessarily need to associate with whites to feel fulfilled mm-hmm. and in fact at the same time huntington was down the river from Ashland, kentucky another industrial urban industrial situation mm-hmm. and ironton ohio which is another industrial situation each of them with their own discrete black populations, all of them coming together to fellowship and socialize and party. And so you had at least perhaps close to five, six, 7,000 black people within a 15 to 20 mile area of each other. And so you you, hey, and there was a a tram, a a cable car system or tram car system that traveled through those places. And so Huntington. What, you have Black religious conferences, of uh, fraternal conferences. Um, it, it was the social cultural center of central mm. Africa. Mm. And And trust me, at a certain point in time, people from the hollers, from the small villages, mm-hmm. from the small towns, are traveling to Huntington because that's the place where they can socialize. They can fellowship. They can shop. They can party. They can engage in vice, they can chase women, they can chase men,
0: <laughs>
3: all those things.
0: Right. You know, and Cicero, this is making me wonder, Mark, because I wonder if you're thinking the same thing. You know, so what what did the civil rights movement look like in Huntington? And and then you're 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 making some connections here, Cicero, in a way between this urban space and the rural spaces of West Virginia. I'm wondering, was there a larger impact that um, that Huntington was having on on culture, the development of culture and economic opportunity or, you know, even economic outlook in the rural spaces of of West Virginia as well, if there was a connection?
3: I think I want to get back to one of your. Before I get to that one, Dan, you know, mm-hmm. you and Marcus talked about um, the sixty percent ownership. Well, one of the things that you know, but, but remember now, I talked about also restrictive covenants. So mm-hmm. how we're, so how, how do you have those um, existing at the same time? Sixty okay. percent ownership restrictive covenants. What that means is essentially is you can buy property here, mm-hmm. but nowhere else. You're right. Okay. So as long as you bought property within the, the the circumscribed defined black areas as defined by the real estate agencies and the municipal uh, municipal uh, leaders, you're good to go. Okay, mm-hmm. it's only when you straight outside and say, "Well, maybe I don't want to live within the black the, the the you know the unofficial de facto black neighborhood. Maybe I want to step out someplace else." That's that's when things begin to be a little bit dicey. Now the city the city did establish a a, a place called Washington Place that was defined, it was defined as a Black-only enclave. So that, that way, those who could afford Black middle class populations, they could afford to own property to buy there. However, that meant then that those Black people who, the middle class, Black professional class who could buy there, it, it served two purposes, Washington Place. Number one, it served to allow Black middle class folks to step away from the Black working class, you know, talk about class certification because it allowed them to buy property in a somewhat, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, elevated place circumstance for the time, but it also allowed white America, white Huntingtonians to be rest assured they're not spreading out any farther into mm-hmm. our neighborhood.
0: Interesting, Marcus. So <laughs> you know, I see you thinking, brother. You know,
1: yeah, I, I, and I was just wondering. You know, I, I'm just I, I I'm just kind of flabbergasted by this homeownership statistic, and uh, I, yeah. I don't mean to keep harping on this Cicero, but I'm I'm wondering about now about the restrictive covenants and yes. whether there was um, so so. Was there more of a kind of acquiescence on the part of of, of black of black Huntingtonians to, okay you know, we we will buy property and, you know, because what matters to us more so is owning property? Or was there kind of resistance both both organized and and unorganized to these restrictive covenants?
3: Yes, both. Both. a again, you have both going at the same time, because just because you set up a place to be for blacks only doesn't mean black people are going to buy into it. And
2: they didn't, because <laughs> right, right.
3: okay. Okay? they recognized what was going on. The overarching agenda was, we want you to stay here, nowhere else. Right. right, right. And we're not going to buy into that. We want the freedom to live where we want to live. And so mm-hmm. they, they didn't buy the property in Washington Place. Now, <laughs> one other thing I have to get to is that, um, and, and basically, you know, what what the black people out there, what I would convey and, and what I would subscribe to is that, Instead of challenging the white power structure, which is going to be difficult because you're only five or six percent of the of the population. West Virginia is historically been one of the whitest states in the union,
2: mm-hmm.
3: historically been, and so there's only so much that black people can do politically. And so what they do is instead of challenging political status quo, we're going to build our own black institutions. Mm-hmm. We're going to concentrate on home ownership. We're gonna concentrate on the domestic arena. We're gonna concentrate on building vibrant, strong churches and schools. Okay. And then that way we don't have to worry about challenging them politically. We we, we there are enough black institutions nationwide and regionally uh, and job opportunities that we can move up the economic ladder.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Cicero, I'm going to tell you, this is a very interesting perspective. And I think that this is, you know, to to kind of end on that thought, given where we are today, you know, in the conversations that we're having not only just here in the Appalachian region of the American South, but across the country about, you know, I I just recently read uh, Keith Payne, Dr. Keith Payne's book, and he's a Hmm. professor, uh, I think, of psychology at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. But if you haven't read it, and those of you listening in the audience have not read Keith Payne's book, The Broken Ladder, Hmm. how inequality affects how we are born, we live, and how we die. It is an amazing, Amazing book um, to look at the uh, gap, the 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 economic or uh, the wealth gap as it exists. And a number of people have been writing writing about this, Cicero. You sure. and I, we've kind of talked about it uh a, a lot in this this gap. Uh, but this point that you make about turning inward reminds me of Earl Lewis's book in their own Africa. interest about Norfolk, exactly. right? Exactly. The, you know turning this inward turn of building institutions. And I don't know what you're seeing today, Cicero, uh, or Marcus, what you're seeing, but a, a lot of the conversations I'm hearing, there is this kind of inward turn again of saying, okay, what do we need to do to kind of build our own institutions that can kind of help advance us economically? And I'm interested to uh, to you know, further maybe talk about what the implications of uh, of that argument are. That discussion might be as we move yeah. forward as a nation. Marcus, yes. let yeah, me let uh, you jump uh,
1: in, especially just quickly because you know I, I think one of the strategically thinking speak thinking, um, I, I think that one of the advantages of you know turning inward, building as Cicero was saying. Uh, our our you know, black institutions, um, you know, that, you know, cultivating um, black wealth. Uh, then, uh, at that point, you know, if you do that consistently over time, then smaller numbers um, are less of a problem politically, right? Because mm-hmm. now, because now, now you can wield more influence, right? Because mm-hmm. now you have other kinds of resources. So, mm-hmm. I, I think this is a very important, important uh, <laughs> sort of, sort of. Uh, socioeconomic history to consider it what's is. happening in, in, in Black Huntington before nineteen twenty nine. Right. Well, Cicero, you know, Marcus, you make an important point there.
0: This is this is really I think we have the basis for a larger conversation here. And Cicero, what I would like to see us do is to have you back. And I would like to get Bill in this conversation as well to get us all (laughs) in here together. And maybe even, you know, one of our other colleagues who is kind of an expert on this region of the state of this of the uh, United States as well, Wilbur Hayden, who is up in Canada, actually uh, teaching in, in Canada. He's lived here in New York, uh, North Carolina before. But I just I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag here, uh, Cicero, that you, myself and um, and Bill and Wilburn are actually working on another edition of Blacks in Appalachia. But I want to thank you for the contribution that you've made to the study of black life in this region.
3: Thank you, gentlemen. Thank and,
0: you. And thank you for being here the with us today. Press
3: is point. Thank you. Okay.
0: So again, Marcus and I are glad to have you all with us. We want to remind you as we close today that the Watterson Harvest Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North
1: Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. You can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcast and Google Play.
0: <laughs> and as you know, you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook. And Twitter, or you can write us at whshow at bpr.org. And and again, Marcus and I thank you for being here, and we're going to look forward to being with you
1: again. Take care.